This is Oscar Dahl. I'm here with Matthew Knutson, and this is We Like Movies AFI Top 100 Countdown number 69. Tootsie! We're in the 60s, Matt. How exciting. This movie actually turns 36 years old this month, so it feels weird to be talking about a movie that came out while I was bouncing around in the crib. I mean, there's a pretty good chance that like the soundtrack from this movie or the song that was Oscar nominated from this film mm-hmm. might have been playing on the radio, entering into the periphery of my adolescent experience or my yeah. my infant experience rather in uh, December of 1982. Well, I was not born yet, so I guarantee my parents saw this movie while I was in the womb. There you go. Probably saw this by probably one of my first movies in the theater. Ex- exactly. So in that regard, you actually have a little more of a <laughs> you have a more direct relation to relationship with it than I do because I was just listening to the song on the radio. You actually were in the theater getting God, to hear Dustin Hoffman's dulcet tones. That's a great question. I need to confirm with my mom and ask what movies they saw in the fall and winter of 82 and spring of 83. Well, I bet you that's pretty damn good chance that they saw it. This was the second highest grossing film of 1982 after E.T. Pretty darn good chance that your parents went to go see this in the theater because that's what everybody else was doing. Nominated for 10 Oscars. Sort of a crazy big hit. I wouldn't want to say out of nowhere. Dustin Hoffman, obviously a big name at the time. Sidney Pollock. Uh, what, what was he coming off of at this point, Matt? Well, this is before Out of Africa, right? Yes. Like this leads into Out of Africa. I believe so. So at this point, is he coming off of, uh, it was what it would have been, Absence of Malice, maybe? I mean, he was, he's always been a, he's always been a journeyman. You know, he won, he won an Oscar for um, Out of Africa and, and everything. And honestly, I just was rewatching uh, The Firm over the weekend mm-hmm. because um, I'm a big fan of the Rewatchables podcast that the guys over at The Ringer do. Yeah, and yeah. they were talking about uh, the firm, and I was like, God, I haven't seen that movie in probably twenty years. I'm going to rewatch that movie, and it's not great. I don't know if it holds up all that well, but it really reminds you like what a incredibly competent, just journeyman, straight down the line filmmaker Sidney Pollock was. Like nothing flashy, but also just like always on point, just like always yeah. satisfactory, which sounds like a backhanded compliment. Well, and also uh, obviously he's an actor too, and so. He does great work with actors, sort of uniform. Yeah, and that was that's on my notes here is that Sidney Pollock is, I think, one of the all time underrated character actors. I think he's really, really, oh, yeah. really funny. He's he's obviously very funny in this. He's wonderful in Michael Clayton, which was one of, obviously one of his last the last things he ever did. And then he's exceptional in Woody Allen's uh, Husbands and Wives, where he plays a very unlikable caustic character. And he, and he's actually like. <laughs> You know, yeah. he's, he's one of the leads of that film, which is crazy. But yes, very underrated. Sort of an imposing presence and just got a lot of weight yeah. to him. Interestingly, he has a movie coming out this year. Ten years, yeah, it's uh, a documentary, right? 
it's Aretha. Is it Aretha Franklin documentary? Yes, Aretha Franklin, Amazing Grace. Yeah. He left us way too soon. He's one of those guys, kind of like like Norman Jewison, who we were talking about a couple weeks ago or a couple months ago, rather. We were talking about in the heat of the night, like these guys who just aren't flashy. Sidney Lumet's another one who just are just constantly just just consistent and just reliable and just doing just out there doing great work and are just rarely spoken of it in the in the hallowed tones that we speak about some of their contemporaries. Sidney Pollock was coming off of a long run of Redford movies, right? He did like seven movies with Robert Redford, I think, right? This property is condemned, sure, Jeremiah yeah. Johnson, The Way We Were, Three Days of the Condor, Electric Horseman, and then, uh, yes, Absence of Malice uh, with uh, Paul Newman, actually, and then Tootsie in 1982. And he was like, he was like the third or fourth director uh, attached to this movie, I think. This circuitous, yeah. Is if you want to do, if you're into this film and want to do the Wikipedia research, very circuitous way that this movie finally landed in Sidney Pollock's lap. This was not his project. This was a real gun for hire situation. It started as a play, and then it was getting passed around, and then it was getting retitled, and it just somehow landed with Sidney mm-hmm. Pollock. I, I doubt any of these guys probably thought they were making a film that was going to go on to, you know, get 10 Oscar nominations and end up as one of the, you know, 70, <laughs> one of the 69 greatest American films of all time. And that's probably, this probably to the film's credit that they approached it not as some sort of awards bait or anything like that right there's a real modesty to the way it's presented and filmed and and sort of uh just just the script in general script there's a number of screenwriters sort of attached to this movie but uh larry gelbart who i believe is best known for being the the mash guy right was he the mash showrunner and barry levinson is uncredited in the screenplay but uh you have to assume that pollock being funny there was probably some alterations going on set and I think this movie you have to start with with the script here, right? Because this movie sort of relishes its its dialogue throughout, and that's sort of the the heart and soul is just the, the interactions and the comedy taken from from the dialogue. And I believe Elaine May also uncredited writer on this. Yes, probably a yeah, pretty yeah. good chance that the, because it had at least a decade of just getting passed around, probably rewritten, rewritten, polished, polished. You know, just getting passed from hand to hand, and it's actually probably surprising that it is as coherent as ended up being considering that it, it passed amongst so many different screenwriters. And it, and it makes sense because you could see how this movie would just start with the concept, right? And then you, f- you have to figure it out from there. And there are a lot of ways you could go with this concept, and you have to really figure out the exact right tone and perspective you're going to have, given that, like I said, it is kind of high concepts comedy type yeah. stuff. Matt, what's your history with this movie? I remember watching it numerous times growing up. It was one of my father's favorite movies, if I remember correctly. But I don't think I had seen this since uh, since college, actually. So I was pretty delighted to turn this on the other day. Not really a film from my childhood. Never, never, you know, never really discussed, never on in the background. I don't even think I saw it until probably high school. And I'll bet you that the reason that I saw it was because I had just seen the first version of the AFI's Top 100 list. And after that came out in 98, I just started mowing through everything that I wasn't familiar with. And I bet you that was probably my motivation to see Tootsie for the first time. It was 62 on that list. Now it's 69. So it dropped a little tiny bit. Yeah. And as a youngster looking at the list, this is one of the sort of easiest, least daunting movies sure, you, yeah, you'll find. Because technically, you know, within my lifetime, like I said, came out two years, two months after I was born. So it, it is. Things that come after you've been born do tend, they do seem like a little bit of an easier sit, right? Sure. At least for a, for, you know, a teenager maybe. But yeah, I, I saw it and really liked it and have revisited pretty consistently every, ever since. I mean, I, I was telling you right before I started the podcast, we started this podcast that I've actually watched it twice in the last 24 hours just because it's a really great movie to kind of have on the, in the background while you're doing other things. Mm-hmm. 
Like it's just the the dialogue just sparkles, and it has a very has a very funny but very pleasant Dave Grusin score. Yeah, which is incredibly <laughs> rooted in its time. I mean, it really feel, like if, if you need to know what 1982 sounded like, just play the. Just play the score mm-hmm. from Tootsie. But it's still kind of charming in its own way. I don't know. It's just a very pleasant experience. It's a movie you can watch with your parents. It's a movie you can watch with your grandparents. It's a movie you can kind of like drop into at any point and catch up. Great cable movie because it's not, there's nothing especially profane about it. it it's a movie that goes down pretty darn smooth. And it's surprising that it is so high on a list like this because at first blush, it does seem a little bit sort of mainstream and disposable, right? Yeah, it definitely does. And and that's where you have to really look at the execution of what could have been just a sort of standard mainstream Hollywood comedy that, you know, crowd pleaser or whatever. Sitting down to watch it, you know, given the given the, the climate, given, you know, Me Too movement, given everything that's been going on in the world and all the good stuff that's happening, I was worried about how this movie might feel dated of course given just the main conceit of the film and the thing that watching it again after after so many years that really just warmed my heart was how inoffensive how sort of progressive and sort of feminist this movie is at its core at every turn this movie avoids the easy jokes. It avoids the lazy jokes. You know, it doesn't do anything even close to something like, you know, Mrs. Doubtfire, right? Which would be the obvious comp here. Yeah. Given how sort of silly the premise is on its face, it's just, it's it's a super impressive sort of treatise on, it's not what a movie is about, it's how it's about what it's about. The execution here at, at, at every point is uh, really impressive, especially when you consider that it was made in 1982. I think what you mentioned about the fact that it doesn't, ever really take the easy joke is indicative of how timeless it seems yeah right absolutely. like it it's it has this it has the ability to last and to endure because the comedy is much more about timing and characterization than it is about being wacky or being broad i mean honestly like the weakest parts of the film i think are the pardon the pun the, the broadest right sure like a lot of the stuff when they go out to see and then they like go out to charles durning's ranch mm-hmm feel a little broader and a little less effective to me. It's not not nearly as memorable. Then when Charles Durning, you know, takes him out to dinner or you know, take, take, takes him out dancing and then when the other actor whose name escapes me, he'll, he'll always be the commandant from um, from uh, Police Academy to me. George Gaines. Thank you, George Gaines. When he comes over and he's singing outside of, <laughs> you know, and yeah. he comes in and wants a drink like, and he's chasing her around the, uh, the apartment, uh, I don't find it to be as funny or as effective because it feels so much more farcical. Mm-hmm. It's technically treading on a lot of the same ground as Some Like It Hot, which mm-hmm. I guess would be an, a little bit of a, of a comp for this as well. For some reason, that movie manages to get away or get away with it's the wrong term. I don't know, manages to find a more sophisticated way of dealing with that broader stuff sure. than this one does. This movie is at its best when it's really leaning into the performances and leaning into the, the rat-a-tat dialogue and to the, the, the interactions. And a lot of the funniest stuff in the movie is the interaction between what's happening on the set of the soap opera and then what's happening in the control room with Dabney Coleman and his, his crew, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's some of my favorite stuff. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned it, but the demerits I'm going to give to this movie are based on that, whatever, 25-minute sequence that they go out to Charles Durning's the movie grinds to a halt. Like, the first hour is fantastic, and the last 20 minutes are fantastic. But there's, like, a good 20, 25, 30 minutes in the middle of the movie really slows the, the film down and sort of loses its edge. And, like I said, gets a little more broad. And, like I said, the execution is pretty great all around throughout the film. But that's the only thing I can really hold my hand up and say, oh, wait, this movie is not, it's not perfect. It feels 
very much like when Bugs Bunny would dress up as a girl bunny, and then all of a sudden Elmer Fudd would be completely taken with, like, just yeah. being in love. Like, the idea of Charles Durning and, and Charles, was it, is it Charles Gaines? Yeah, uh, George Gaines. George Gaines. The, the, the way that they just, like, fall all over themselves for her, it feels a lot like Bugs Bunny dressing up as a girl bunny to me. It doesn't work as well. Although, that being said, it does set up quite possibly my favorite punchline in the whole film which is after Dustin Hoffman has revealed himself to be a man taken off the wig and then everybody is you know fainting or you know cracker wise they're they're all reacting and then he just looks up and says does Jeff know which I think is just (laughs) which only works because of that scene where he went over to the apartment and Bill Murray came in and he was under the impression that Bill Murray and and Dorothy were were a couple like that (laughs) is just such a wonderful like the timing on that is perfect yeah Bill Murray's in this movie how about that (laughs) Everybody everybody forgets that Bill Murray plays a significant role in this. This is like the lost Bill Murray performance. It it really is, and he's uh, terrific at the beginning of the movie, and he sort of disappears for a long portion of it and sort of shows back up a couple times near the end. He's great and a wonderful foil, and every time you see him, you wish you could have, have more Bill Murray in it. But Dustin Hoffman... Obviously carries carries the show here and takes someone of that level of talent to pull this off because you know we saw it in Miss Doubtfire. You see it in other places. You could have a tendency to go too broad and and too sort of uh, on the nose for what this movie's trying to do. And Dustin Hoffman nails it, and that's why this movie has endured. Right? I mean, given that this movie has such uh, such cred. It's number 69 on this list. Like, how would you rank the importance of the players involved when it comes to, like, Dustin Hoffman, the script, Sidney Pollack? Yeah, I mean, script and performances, I think, go hand in hand yeah. with something like this, right? I mean, it, you're exactly right. This this does, this completely falls flat unless you have someone with uh, Dustin Hoffman's powers completely committing to this. I haven't watched it in a number of years, but something tells me that Mrs. Doubtfire probably does not hold up all that well. And uh, honestly, I felt like it was kind of problematic when it came out. And with all due respect to what Rob Williams is is capable of, I think that movie is constantly taking the easy way out and constantly taking the easy joke because uh, Rob Williams can't help himself. It's just That's just his default setting. Yeah. And, and as a result... I think the people who really, really gush about that movie are coming at it from a very nostalgic place. That's a pure nostalgia 90s kid movie, e- for sure. Exactly, exactly. Whereas this movie just totally endures and people never stop talking about how, like you said, how progressive it still feels and how just comedically satisfying it is today. I mean, it just it, it just it plays really, really well. And I was watching an interview, with, there's a relatively famous interview that Dustin Hoffman did the first AFI Top 100 go-around back in 98, where he was talking about the moment he realized that he had to make this movie was when he realized that Dorothy Michaels was the kind of woman who he never would have talked to at a party because she didn't fulfill aesthetically sort of his qualifications for going over and talking to someone, talking to a stranger, to speaking to a woman you didn't know, right? Sure. And throughout the entire movie, he's constantly like, God, I wish I could be prettier. I wish I could be prettier. I wish we could make Dorothy prettier. What could we, you know, like, I want to make her look a little more attractive. Uh, How far can you pull the camera back? How do you feel about Cleveland? (laughs) And Dustin Hoffman's like, I would never have talked to Dorothy Michaels if I met her, if I saw her across the room because she just, you know, she's not pretty enough. And he starts, well, he's being interviewed he starts to cry thinking about this and he's like that's why i needed to do the movie because he i realized that i there's all these interesting women that i never got to know in my life because of this and he says as a result tootsie was never a comedy for me which is i mean speaks to his his approach to this right the the seriousness of it is uh you can feel it throughout and that's even written into the the script and it's sort of a a big part of the movie is how much his character in the film takes 
the role of Dorothy seriously. I mean, there's lots of scenes at the apartment, you know, especially talking to Bill Murray about what, what he should wear and his different outfits or whatever. And just the commitment in, in those scenes for the characters, sort of the commitment Dustin Hoffman makes, you know, in, in the movie himself. Again, it just goes back to like this premise had to be taken this seriously by the writers, by Sidney Pollack, by Dustin Hoffman for this to work at all. And it's a long shot that something like this would be critically acclaimed, let alone in the top 100 list so it's it's kind of a it's kind of a minor miracle that we're even talking about tootsie right now right like this could <laughs> yeah. this could have easily easily have been just a forgotten movie from the 80s that none of us ever talked about again but just a, a magic combination just a little alchemy that uh that this is that this is still a thing it's i mean it's what this art form is capable of right when all these component pieces come together and form this perfect union like you said it's alchemy that's that's the perfect word for it and uh and when it happens i mean it reminds you why you know why this is the greatest art form mankind has has ever invented it's weird to be saying that in in the context of speaking about a movie called tootsie which is such a (laughs) frivolous title i know but yeah it all it all it all works and it all comes together for their and and that unassuming approach is what really kind of makes this all fly how many other straightaway hollywood comedies deserve or have this type of reputation i can't think of 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 too many you know you have on one end of the spectrum stuff like airplane or whatever like you're you're straight up farcical insane comedies and then you have you know you you said some like it hot you have annie hall although i would say woody allen's a, a different beast than this kind of movie but what other films can we can we talk about like groundhog day like what else is there groundhog day is a good one i'm, I'm just looking at the uh, afi also did their spinoff lists, right? They yeah, did the, the comedy, best yeah. comedies. Yeah. So Tootsie's number two, uh, right next to something like that. It's kind of interesting that cross-dressing movies represent the number one <laughs> and two. And then, yeah, the aforementioned Annie Hall. You know, The Graduate, I guess there's there's something yeah. to be said for another Dustin Hoffman movie, although that movie is certainly a little more making a, you know, making a statement about yeah. the 60s. As a, whereas this movie is supposed to, you're supposed to be able to drop this any in any time, right? Yeah, I guess what I'm talking about is like the aim of the filmmakers. Like, I doubt anyone involved in Tootsie was trying to make like a transcendent, Oscar-worthy type of movie. They were just making a Hollywood comedy in the best way they possibly could, right? If you put those parameters up, I guess what I'm, yeah, you're left with something like Groundhog Day, and I'm sure there are others that we, we're not thinking of. I think you got to go back to some of the screwball stuff. You know, yeah. some of your bringing up babies or the Philadelphia story, even both of which are also on this comedy list. Sure. Um, You know, when Harry Met Sally would come out Mm -hmm. later in the Mm -hmm. 80s, and I feel like that movie has relatively relatively reasonable priorities you know like it's it sets a relatively reasonable bar for itself and then completely transcends it yeah i mean i guess you can talk about some rob reiner stuff too right you got princess bride or sure spinal tap even your point is well taken i mean the comedy is is really tough comedy doesn't pop up on lists like this very often which i think is is twofold one i think it's very very tough to make a great comedy and two i just feel like we don't regard them in the same way like we just don't regard the great comedies with the same level of esteem mm-hmm. as uh, as we as dramas and we we really should you know maybe we should even regard comedies with more esteem because i think that the degree of difficulty is actually bigger i agree 100 so, <laughs> percent. so yeah i mean it's it's really tough and it is and it really does speak to this movie's merits that it manages to infiltrate this high on the list yeah do you think the subject matter do you think the progressivism the feminist sort of point of view of this film is the reason or one of the reasons it's this movie has endured or do you think that's on the periphery i don't know because it doesn't feel 
preachy, right? No, it's definitely not preachy. It's, if it, you it made is, this movie today, it would be obnoxious, like it would be overbearingly preachy. Yeah. You know, like I just feel like you couldn't make this movie in today's climate without having to make statement after statement after statement. Whereas this movie kind of has one statement and sticks to it and is consistent about it and is faithful to it. It's modest about it for sure. Y- yeah. I mean, Sidney Pollock's whole thing was like, here's the conceit. You got a flawed guy who, by dressing like a woman, learns to be a better man. Mm-hmm. Right. Bada bing. And then while doing that, he obviously can assert himself and become a little bit of a, of a figurehead for a minor movement. You know, people rally around this character because she is so assertive. And, you know, he, he, he causes Jessica Lange's character to assert herself more and not be a pushover and not allow Dabney Coleman to mistreat her. And Dorothy Michaels makes these like small little inroads. She makes she penetrates, but it's never you know, she doesn't become Norma Ray or something. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> like by the time, by the end of the movie, you, you look back and you're like, that was pretty modest. Like the, the end of the film is basically him learning to be a little bit of a better man, meeting this girl who maybe he has a future with. That's pretty much it. <laughs> Right? Yeah, like the last, it. the last scene of the movie is him trying to, you know, convincing her, convincing Jessica Lange that he's not a bad guy and he never meant to hurt her feelings. Maybe they have a connection that they could explore. I and mean, the last shot of the movie is just them putting their arms around each other, walking off uh, down the street, and then the credits roll over him. That's that's it. Yeah, and that and that kind of restraint makes the ending and the movie all the more powerful, right? Because it feels so much more realistic. You know, a, a typical comedy would have some sort of major triumph at the end of this for the character. Um, yeah. And this movie. Uh, refuses to go that broad and that's sort of a that's what the movie does throughout probably why it endures right a a more insecure comedy like maybe something from the apato realm would keep sort of exploring this further like would continue for 45 minutes exactly like they would show them going up to syracuse they would show them putting on bill murray's play um it would show him sort of you know making it up to terry gar or whatever apologizing finally and then and then jessica lang would eventually come up to syracuse because she was like i was visiting my dad and i heard the play was and then they would have a consolation that you know like it would just keep going and keep sort of like batting the uh, proverbial ball of string around where this movie is just very economical just like get in get out we've said we were here to say let's get out of this you know like mm-hmm. let's make a clean break yeah the the terry gar thing i think is very telling because the movie kind of treats her badly like it kind of oh yeah does her a little dirty but that's sort of consistent with who michael is right yeah we have we have to see the warts right and you know you mentioned terry gar i think we have to she's so wonderful uh, yeah terry gar is incredible uh jessica lang the only oscar winner in this movie won best supporting actress uh and we have gina davis too incredible female cast yeah i mean jessica lang had just hadn't done much she she had done king kong you know she was a model she was in she's she's really great in all that jazz which came out in 1970 i guess a year after king kong sure uh, where she plays the angel of death yeah jessica lang has two very unexpected oscars that's a great trivia question to add even people who consider themselves oscar nerds a lot would not remember that jessica lang won a very strange best supporting actress oscar for this film and then won her uh, actress oscar for a really obscure movie called blue sky Great actress, but I think that the fact that she has two Oscars would be a surprise to most people. And honestly, she's she's really great in this movie. It's just it's a it's kind of a weird role. Is she deserving of an Oscar in this role? What do you think? It's weird. She's very because, good. She's very good, but 
the aforementioned Terry Gar, I feel like, is more impressive or at least a little showier in this yeah. movie. And you know, if you if I didn't know just Glang had won, and you asked me, oh, which of these actresses would get nominated, I would I would guess Terry Gar. Maybe some of that is that Terry Gar was kind of a known presence at this time, and she basically is Terry Gar all the time. <laughs> I guess so. That might have something to do with it. You're right. This was pretty early for for Jessica Lange. King Kong was her first film, then all that jazz, and then she did a movie called How to Beat the Cost of living which i never heard of and then she did the postman always rings twice remake with jack nicholson and then tootsie so you got one two three four so this is her fifth feature and she wins an oscar for it crazy um and she's she's a cool badass lady and always has been that's great yeah yeah no she's great in this movie it's just it's it's just kind of funny like i feel like if you didn't know this movie had been nominated for any oscars let alone win any i feel like if you just showed it to somebody who didn't know anything about the history of it and said who from that movie won you know who who won oscars for that I just don't think Jessica Lange would have been one, like the first three people that I would have rattled yeah. off. And I, and I suspect that a lot of it has to do with sort of the symbolism of her character, right? Sure. Like single sure, sure. mom and what she meant to the you know the progressivism of the film in general. All right, Matt, what's your favorite scene in the movie? All right, well, I would like you to refer to your email. Okay. And uh, we're going to do a little bit of role playing here. All right. Uh, my question is, would you like to play Sidney Pollack or would you like to play Dustin Hoffman? I'm more of a Sidney Pollack kind of guy, I think. Okay. Then you're going to yeah. be playing the character George Fields. Okay. So I, I really think that this scene is not only the best scene in the movie, but it's really like indicative of the sophistication of the comedy in this script. And my, I think my favorite scenes are the ones between these two. And there's there's the really famous one at the beginning where he first goes in, he like interrupts Sidney Pollock in his office, and you know he's, they're talking about how he played a tomato, like he, you know he got rave reviews for playing a tomato, and you know you should have seen my endive salad, yeah, yeah. That's the more famous scene. Yeah. This is the I think this is a superior scene, which comes very late in the movie. So let's just briefly uh, do a little role playing here. Right. At, uh, you you have the first line. All right, I haven't done a cold read in a while, so <laughs> it's so. all right, no pressure. <laughs> Something's weird about you. Since when do you care so much about what other people feel? I mean, if I didn't love Julie before, you should have seen the look on her face when she thought I was a lesbian. Lesbian? You just said gay. No, no, no. Sandy thinks I'm gay. Julie thinks I'm a lesbian. I thought Dorothy was supposed to be straight. Dorothy is straight. Les, the, the sweetest, nicest man in the world tonight, asked me to marry him. A guy named Les wants you to marry him? No, 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 no. He wants to marry Dorothy. Does he know she's a lesbian? Dorothy's not a lesbian. I know that, but does he know that? No, what? That or uh, I, I don't know. You know that he gave me a ring? Gave me a diamond ring? Well, what did you say? What do you mean? What did I say? I, I told him I gotta think it over. And when the ladies room i was pissed in the sink i'm in trouble man <laughs> and and scene. scene i love it go look it up on youtube we didn't do it to, we didn't do it any justice Actually, but i think i think that's a that's a solid c yeah not not bad for a c for cold reading they've just got such an unbelievable rhythm and chemistry the two of them i could just watch conversations between Sidney pollock and dustin huffman all day long yeah the first scene with dorothy and her oh, dorothy and him in the at the uh, russian, russian tea room, tea room. <laughs> <laughs> is also also tremendous. I just yeah, I just I can't get enough of that relationship and I really to me that scene just speaks to the absurdity of it all. It's just a wonderful there's it almost has like a Marx brother quality to it, you know? Yeah. And uh it just it it really sums up the entire the the farce of it all for me. Sidney Pollock's just a really good really good foil for him cuz he he stands up for himself and is super super realistic and down to earth and doesn't freak out like, you know, he could have been a pretty stock character and he's not. What's what's your favorite scene? I really think the degree of difficulty of the review cannot be overlooked okay and i think the execution is really incredible because how smart it is and how the character manages to make it as easy of a landing as it possibly could be while still holding a lot of weight it's also really really funny it made me want to go watch uh, soap dish you, you remember <laughs> soap dish 
Oh, yeah. Great young Robert Downey Jr., uh, Kevin Klein, Sally Field, Whoopi Goldberg. Really funny movie. And it basically is, it takes all the behind the scenes of a soap opera that's going on in Tootsie and just expands all that out to feature length. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great climactic moment. And I just, I just love, you know, seeing all the different reactions. The reactions, <laughs> Tabney Coleman's reaction. I knew there was a reason she didn't like me. Yeah. You get, you get all the reactions in the control room. You get all the reactions of the camera guys on set. And then you get Bill Murray's reaction. And then you get Terry Garr's reaction. Like, you get to watch everybody else watching this scene in their apartments and stuff. And then you get to, you basically just get to rattle off all these different punchlines from all the different people culminating with, does Jeff know? <laughs> um, yeah, it's a it's a great climactic moment. I mean, we're really stroking this movie. It seems like we're both very taken with it. And I know we've been talking about like how comedies deserve to be reckoned with. They deserve to be higher on a list like this. Mm-hmm. My first impulse is that I love this movie and I revisit it all the time. And I want to recommend it to anybody who hasn't seen it. And it's a great movie to watch over the holidays, yada, yada. And yet this still feels a little high for for me for something like this am i being cynical no i was gonna i was gonna make the argument that i don't think it should be on the list at all oh wow okay (laughs) i really do appreciate this movie and i think it's hard for comedies to get the respect they deserve and like you said the degree of difficulty is really high there are just other different comedies that i would put in front of it and i think that the fact that there's 30 minutes of this movie that to me are totally disposable and, and grind the proceedings to a halt i think that sort of disqualifies it from the list for me as much as i appreciate and, and, and enjoyed it upon rewatch the aforementioned groundhog day right that would be a good replacement for it and you know we talk about symbolism all the time and you know a symbolic comedic entry onto the list i think is good i think there probably are different films that 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 could be on here instead so you would you would take it off completely uh yeah i mean i i'd have to make the list from scratch but yeah maybe maybe in the 90s but uh that's exactly where i was going to put it i was like this is this is a great movie to kind of like start the list off with you know get it up there with your yankee yankee doodle dandies and stuff yeah well we both agree yankee doodle dandy should not be in this list, so. <laughs> Fair, but i think this should be this should be up in that category i mean i do i don't want a list like this without a sydney pollock film so sure. if this is the movie that real that represents sydney pollock's body of work then yes of course it needs to be included yeah that's fair i'm not i'm not mad i'm not mad that it's there although i'll say that like some other movies so and and it's always gonna it's always gonna have a special place for me just because it it really represents you know just like the tone of it the music the i mean the look of new york like not that i lived in new york in the early 1980s but like there's something very familiar about this film because it really does feel like something i was receiving via osmosis during the first couple years of my life Sure. You know, like it, it really is an unbelievable 1980s time capsule, which would usually be, I think, a demerit against something. It, it somehow comes across as kind of charming in this. I mean, there's a really silly song. Uh, I mean, there's a couple silly songs, <laughs> including <laughs> including a, there's, a, there's a titular song as well, which is very silly. And then there's a more kind of like melancholy song. It might be, it's called It Might Be You, okay. which is just... I mean, it, it doesn't get much more saccharine, adult, contemporary, you know, <laughs> yeah. 1980s top 40 hit. Uh, you know, it's like something out of Arthur, for example, which is another total 1980s time capsule movie. In that regard, it's always going to have a little bit of a special place in my heart for me. The fact that it came out the year I was born. Well, I think that's a good way uh, to wrap things up. This has been We Like Movies AFI Top 100 Countdown, number 69, Tootsie. Say goodbye, Matt. Goodbye. Time. I've been passing time Watching trains go by All of my life Lying on the sand Watching seabirds fly Wishing there would be 
Wondering how 